once you gain an audience, it's a very, very unique place and a very, very unique medium to have conversations that aren't happening in any other form of entertainment right now. And I think that's what's special to me. The white space that exists where only podcasts can really be your form of entertainment. Welcome to episode six of the Idea Exchange podcast. I'm your host, Tyler Cho. And in today's episode, I'm speaking with Matt Russell, who is the CEO at Colossus, a media company that's on a mission to become the number one destination to learn about business building and investing. And it also happens to be home to some of the shows that first got me hooked into podcasting, Invest Like the Best, Business Breakdowns, Founders, and and many more. Matt and I actually overlapped professionally in a prior role for about a year on what was effectively a two-year-long side project under the Colossus umbrella, and he's one of the few examples where I found a professional relationship that actually translated into a strong personal relationship. You know, I've never really been a huge fan of having formal mentors. I have been assigned plenty of mentors in the past within the professional world. And I feel like oftentimes you end up getting assigned somebody with different interests, different values, different career ambitions. And so their advice isn't always directly applicable. But Matt and I, we talk on a monthly basis. And one of the things that I really appreciate about Matt is that he treats me more like a peer, despite the fact that he has much more knowledge and experience than I do. He's always giving me I guess, guidance, personal advice, but he never says, you know, you should do X or you should do Y. And I think that's why we get along so well. That and the fact that we're both incredibly passionate about podcasting. In this conversation, you'll learn that Matt spent the early part of his career at Goldman, almost a decade there before making the transition into the podcasting and media world. And Matt is now host of an excellent podcast called Making Media, which you should definitely check out, where he co-hosts with Dom Cook, everything media related. So I really enjoyed this podcast with Matt Russell and hope you do as well. One of the things that I realized in speaking to Dom was like, there are these people that you work with in a professional capacity and you spend like so much time with them. And I don't know, I haven't had that long of a career and I've only been in like a couple roles at this point, but you spend like your entire day with them over the course of years. And then as you go on from one gig to the next, maybe once a year, I'll link up with those people or those relationships kind of flatline to some extent. And it's not necessarily because I didn't like like those people or, or whatever, it just naturally happens. But for Dom and also for you, we have continued the dialogue and when we come across interesting stuff, or when you're even sharing on Twitter, the stuff that you're doing with making media, I've found it like very valuable to just continue the dialogue. And so I, I really appreciate you making the time to, to do this. And I'm, I'm super excited to get into some of the nitty gritty as well. Absolutely. When I saw that you were doing this, it made me incredibly happy. I'm excited that you're doing a podcast just as I'm excited every time your newsletter comes through my inbox on a monthly basis. So as you know, from the replies that I have to that newsletter and from passing it on to others, I enjoyed working with you, but it's also awesome to just kind of share in your journey that you make very public. So a lot of the feeling is mutual. I appreciate it. Well, the other thing that we have in common is that, and you had a longer tenure there, but we all we both like had a, a stint at, at Goldman. I was only there for over two years and you were there almost for a decade long. And for you to make that pivot from being in a very 
corporate and big investment bank with all the notoriety that Goldman has, and then somehow shifting in the, to the podcasting space where you are managing this podcast called Making Media, as well as this entire you know enterprise podcast network is a pretty dynamic shift. And it actually had me thinking as well about you had posted on Twitter. This was maybe last year, something about the power of story by Jim Lore, a book that mm-hmm. I, I ended up reading and how you have like these narratives about your life progression and how those things shift and how you have to kind of update those models to some extent. So I'm just curious a little bit, like, tell me about the the Goldman experience and then how you ended up getting to, to Colossus. Would love to hear that. Sure. Yeah. So we did both work at Goldman. I would say what was different is we ended up at Goldman, this prestigious place prior to Goldman. I went to school at James Madison University, which is slightly different than Tyler's Stanford, uh, <laughs> different in terms of, of prestige. And what I found really interesting immediately stepping through the door at Goldman was you're working with incredibly ambitious people. And, you know, I interned at Lehman Brothers and spent some time at Barclays, same exact type of ambitious people there. But you're working with people who are not used to losing or being anything but the best. Yep. And that was something that immediately stood out to me was you're working with peers that have all these accolades and they're used to being number one at everything that they do, almost perfectionist in many cases. And seeing how they respond to that environment was like right off the bat, just very, very interesting for me to experience, not necessarily coming from that in terms of the university experience that I had or even the high school or prior to that. So right off the bat, that was kind of like a a unique thing, stepping into this culture. But over time, I just had an excellent time. And when I reflect back on it, the colleagues that I got to work with, the caliber of colleagues, and that's not just like the people that were senior to me. Some of my best relationships were people within the compliance department, junior level, level people that I just found to be incredibly interesting people. And it was what you make of it. So Similar to what you mentioned, you spend all these time, all this time with people working next to them. There's a variety of different people that I've kept in touch with, and I've built really strong relationships with them over time. So net-net, the Goldman experience was great. I worked through various different positions at that firm, and I honestly never had plans to leave the broader finance world. Hmm. You know, I, I made this progression within Goldman going from sales and trading into research, and then within research going from credit research into equities research. So I I saw a few different seats. My intention was always to build a career as an investor on the buy side. And I moved over to Raven Capital for a couple of years in between Goldman and Colossus. And I expected to be there for the remainder of my career, building out this business. It was only when Patrick and Damien and Josh announced that they're building out Colossus and looking to be around somebody who can focus on content a little bit more. And it just so happened I was on Twitter that weekend in the moment, saw the tweet, and I thought to myself, Why not at least engage, have a conversation with them? So it was very unexpected. It was not something that was planned out. It was kind of just in the moment reaction. And then over the next couple of months, something grew into an opportunity and I, and I jumped at it. That's pretty incredible. When you, uh, when you were at Goldman and you came from, I guess it was James Madison university is where you graduated from. Right. I'm always curious, like, did you feel like you had a bit of like something to prove because in that Goldman culture, there's very much the environment of like, what school did you go to? And Goldman's filled with those, those people that care about that a lot. So it's interesting. It, It honestly, it started in my internship at Lehman brothers where 
somebody was reading off for the summer class. And this is 2008 summer at Lehman reading. There was 30 interns and somebody had interned in the White House. Somebody was, you know, just like NASA, all these different accolades. And then literally this same person was like, who's here from JMU? And it was not inter, you know, using it in a negative way. His daughter mm-hmm. was eventually going to end up there, but it just kind of like put this spotlight on me, like something out of a sitcom. So I had experienced it. What I immediately found was most of the people at the other universities, liberal arts majors, a lot of them were just following that path because that's what they were told to do. I in college had had really developed a passion for the markets, really gotten interesting in the investment world. So I was in terms of just like, you know, where I was relative to them in terms of the market oriented stuff, actually more advanced. And from a a pure like intelligence standpoint, I didn't feel like there was like a gap in between me and the peer group. So I did not have an issue merging into an organization like that. And the interesting thing with Goldman was I, for the internship opportunities, I had turned down a Goldman sales and trading internship to take a Lehman Brothers asset management internship in the summer of 2008. Now you can question my (laughs) decision-making skills, but I kept a close relationship with those recruiters at Goldman. And what happens when you have these cycles is they under hire for the next analyst class. So they gave me an opportunity to come back. And once I stepped back into, or once I stepped into that organization, I actually thought it was a smooth process. There wasn't too much focus on where I went to school. It was mostly at that point about, you know, what I could do for everybody around me. I'm pretty interested in just like picking your brain because you're basically like a a decade ahead of me in terms of career progression. And in terms of years, yeah, (laughs) not anything else. Age, yes, everything else, no. Exactly. But when I, when I was at Goldman and I was thinking ahead and looking at some of the people who were... I guess, further down in their careers, like some of them really did enjoy their job. But the one thing that was pretty clear to me was there were some people who looked at the Goldman role as do two to three years and then cycle out. And the people that ended up staying, let's say five plus years, the probability that they'd end up shifting away from that career path was pretty diminished after that. So like being there for almost, was it 10 years, right? Mm -hmm. Was it pretty difficult to make that move or what kind of precipitated uh, a change? No, it wasn't difficult. I would say I am not someone who has hard and fast rules and committed to this for the rest of my life. I think that's kind of silly. And the reality is, if there's opportunities that come up, listen, if Bob Iger says, Matt, you're going to join me and you're going to work next to me at Disney for a year and then you're going to take over Disney. I'm sorry, Patrick, I'm probably going to join up with Bob and I'm probably <laughs> going to do that. So there are a few things out there that, you know, it's just realistically, you put yourself in somebody else's shoes and you understand why they would make those decisions. So for me, I always kept an open ear in terms of what else was out there. And again, my mindset was always, I want to move to the buy side. Now, I'm not a grass is greener person, so that's why I didn't make the move. But I would say moving from sales and trading to research after three years, that was a natural transition. I wanted to get into a role where I was an expert. That was something about sales and trading, which was always frustrating to me. I couldn't talk to a client and be the last person that they talked to. I was always connecting them with somebody else. Hmm. I rarely had information that only I had. And you know, you couldn't get better information from somebody else within the organization. So that started to bother me over time. And that's why the research transition makes sense. I was the person in high yield energy. If you needed an answer on something in that category, I was going to be the person that you would go to. And that made me feel much better. Moving into equity research, that was when I felt like, okay, an external option might make sense. 
looking outside the the firm, nothing ever was right in terms of the opportunities that came in. And then the head of research tapped me for this equity research role, which was very prominent at the time. It was like mm-hmm. a prestigious role in terms of taking over the sector that I took over at a young age. I partially think he knew I would be tortured by it and he got some pleasure out of it. But that was a much harder decision. But I learned a ton in terms of transitioning. You know, you'd think research, how different could it be? It was drastically different, those mm. two seats. And the so you when you were doing equity research, what the focus was on was it transportation? Yes. Is that right? Okay. Yeah. And do you still follow those like stocks or that space pretty closely, just given your background? Yes. Energy and transportation. It's like one of those things where once it's your baby, you really can't quit it. So whether it's the rails or the trucking sector in the energy space, what's going on with oil and the different subsectors, I am very far away from it compared to where I used to be in terms of really understanding what's going on. But I 100% keep tabs. I am still on a lot of distributions, even though I've changed my email several times. I still sign up for a lot of the you know various news sources. And I think there's just something about those industries where you spend so much time learning about them, you get very interested in them, and then you can't help but see them all around you. I still remember starting to learn about the trucking sector. I, driving on the highway was never the same again. It was like, oh, Night Swift. I understand that. Oh, an Amazon box. Oh, okay. So those are just little things where it can completely change your world. And then you don't remember what it was like beforehand. When I, so it was probably 2016, 2017, when I was like a sophomore or junior at Stanford, when I, when podcasts first like came onto my radar and the two that I had been listening to pretty actively, one was Invest Like the Best with Patrick, and then the other was Econ Talk with Russ Roberts. Mm. Yes. So I'm a big fan of that podcast. But it it was a very natural situation where like I found the podcast, I started listening to them every week, and then I started to realize just like how much information I was being exposed to on a regular basis and how powerful that was. And one of my, I guess, insecurities was not being able to read at the same rate that some of my peers were able to read. But with audio, it was different because like I could I could consume insane amounts of audio content. When when did the podcasting dynamic first like come on your radar? Was it when you were at Goldman doing like research or how did that emerge? Yes. It was when I was at Goldman doing research, I want to say in that 15, 16, 17 time frame, whenever serial came out. Mm-hmm. was when I really picked up podcasts. And it, that's what's interesting is that was what first got me. And I thought to myself, I can remember I was on a flight. We used to do these day trips to Boston. You'd leave on a 6 a.m. flight. You'd have an 8 a.m. meeting, a 9.30, 11. Then you'd have a lunch meeting and then at 2 o'clock, a 3.30 and a 5. And then you'd be on a flight home. So it was an active day. And in the mornings, it was really early. I would listen. And I, I think I ripped through that series basically in a day. And I was like, wow, this is amazing. And then I found some other podcasts like Patrick's podcast and best like the best. And what actually got me interested in that podcast originally was I was doing a lot of fireside chats, panels, management conversations. And I was listening to Patrick and saying to myself, he's asking really great questions and getting really great answers out of these guests. How was he doing that? So I was almost using it as like study material for the research analyst role, Mm. which they're not like for life. It's not apples to apples. And even now when I'm doing interviews. I still can't do it quite like Patrick does it. But that was basically a hook that then I was like, okay, now I'm not just getting entertaining material. I'm getting informational material. And it's very similar to what you said. From there, it was 
basically nonstop. I can remember I would walk home on the West Side Highway, be listening to a podcast. All of a sudden, the dishes started to get cleaned more in our apartment because I was listening to a podcast. <laughs> it was all this white space, you know, that used to exist in my day where it was not unproductive, but I wasn't doing anything else besides, you know, using my hands and cleaning or whatever. I could now be listening to a podcast. And I think a lot of us are a little bit, you know, too obsessed with productivity, but this falls into that category where you can be learning and using your hands and eyes at the same time. And it's pretty incredible. And so the the actual opportunity at Colossus and in terms of those those conversations and how it started, it was initially over just Twitter DMs and then it evolved into you essentially helping with the management of Colossus itself. So it started with a outreach to Damien, who was first partnered with Colossus, with Patrick to start Colossus. We started conversations. I mentioned my background. I mentioned that when you're a sell-side research analyst, that is some form of content. You get some understanding of what investors react to in terms of what they're most interested in hearing about. And that, I think, gave me somewhat of a leg up in terms of, okay, I can hit the ground running even though I haven't done podcasting. I have some understanding of the space. I have some understanding of the people within this ecosystem. Yeah. So I started talking to him again, did not think this was going to work out. And I love startups and the whole idea of being entrepreneurial. But when you go from a finance role where the wages can be quite high to yeah. take that massive step back when my wife was pregnant at the time is not an easy decision. But what I found with, again, the finance background was I looked at the actual books and the business. And I said to myself, wow, this is a truly incredible business. Yes. Are there challenges to scaling this business? Sure. But you have a real leg up in terms of being a self-sustaining business right off the bat. And you could think about where it can go from there. So there's, that was one piece. And then Damien, Patrick being very flexible in terms of how we could come to an agreement where everyone was aligned, was very performance-based. And if I was performing well, the company was performing well, but I was also being compensated well. So much to my surprise, we found something that worked. And I took over at the time what was supposed to be the content. And then as time went on and things evolved, Damien went back to his previous company to take on a, a leadership role. I took over the operation and we've been running since then. And in, in terms of your views of podcasting and also just like what makes a good podcast in general or what makes a successful podcast at this point you guys are managing like five or six maybe more than that shows you have your own show with dom making media have, have your views evolved over time in terms of what you first thought about kind of made it a good or successful podcast to kind of where you are now or are things that have surprised you I think I've only been surprised to the upside in terms of the potential impact that you can have with podcasts and who you can get exposure to via podcast. So yes, I'm sure there's things that have surprised me in the other direction, but net net, I think the medium is just fascinating to me. I heard Bob Costas was on a podcast just this past week and they were going into his departure from NBC and he was alluding to the fact that it's been covered very poorly in the press. And he said, we're on a podcast, so I can actually go into detail about this. I can I can get into the proper nuance about it. That's mm -hmm. what a podcast is for. And yeah. to me, that's, that's actually very symbolic that Bob Costas, legendary broadcaster, person that is not just affiliated with sports, but has always handled things from all different directions in terms of like the impact to society and whatnot. 
saying this. And I think if you look at it, everywhere else around us, attention spans are shorter and algorithms and technology is very much changing things to focus on that. And there's one medium where that's not the case. That's podcast. Now, that doesn't mean that you could just, you know, waste your time and people do have a shorter attention span, so you can lose their attention very quickly. But that said, once you gain an audience, it's a very, very unique place and a very, very unique medium to have conversations that aren't happening in any other form of entertainment right now. And I think that's what's special to me, in addition to everything that I mentioned before, the white space that exists where only podcasts can really be your form of entertainment. When I am out gardening, I can't be watching Netflix. I can't be reading a book. When I'm on a run, same thing. Mm. I can't be going through my Instagram or my reels when I'm doing these things. And there's not anything that's going to compete with podcasts besides music or just doing nothing in the medium term. Maybe you have the VR glasses that eventually compete. But I think that's what's interesting to me as well. So you have those two things. Now, is it incredibly difficult to grow a podcast? Yes. Are there certain things that you can do to grow them? Yes. But I think... To me, that's actually exciting. I like that there's no algorithm you can hack to do it. I like that most of the things that people recommend to me are not all that great in terms of strategies. And the one strategy that beats everything is time. So it's like, what's your barrier to entry? It's not capital. It's some form of labor, but it's labor over a course of time. And I I think that's really, really interesting. There's a huge trade-off there in terms of of time and optimizing for growth. And even with this podcast, I'm violating a lot of probably the ironclad rules about like finding your niche, choosing a specific topic to talk about. And and for me, it's just like, what can I do that's sustainable where I'm enjoying it and kind of just pursuing my curiosity so that I can maximize that that time horizon? Because I realize like if I choose a topic like marketing or investing and I'm constrained to talking about that and only that, that over time, it's just not going to be fun for me. Um, so having the flexibility to kind of go in whatever direction, even though short, you know, medium term, it's not a very great strategy for building a audience space that has the fervor that you're you're looking for. Over longer time horizons, hopefully it attracts the same type of people that are just multidisciplinary and curious about the broader world in general. Yeah, I think that's right. I think that you can view it through the lens of growing this specific podcast. But if you just take it through a separate lens and say, okay, we were going to have this conversation anyway. We have monthly conversations. In this case, we're just recording the conversation. So it's not actually adding to your calendar. And once it goes out there into the digital world, it basically is there forever. And I think this is something that's like still not captured by many people, or it's still not properly valued. Digital assets like podcasts, like essays, they have infinite duration in terms of when they can create value for you. And it's like, I get into the nerdy finance terms, but if you just value any type of business or any type of instrument, it is the discounted cash flows in the future. And most of those things, they have some terminal value or some end to the cash flows. If you look at fixed income securities, there's a reason that they trade close to par because you're going to get paid back a very specific amount. Equities, you could see these, you know, how these equities trade and options. It's like, that's where it comes from is, you know, data and and time decay, all this stuff. So if you have an asset with infinite duration, like there's infinite value to this. If in 10 years, Tyler is running Amazon and Matt is running Disney, you know how valuable this this podcast episode will be (laughs) and how interesting it will be to people. And those things just didn't exist many years ago. And I still don't think people have fully comprehended it, despite us reading Paul Graham's essays over and over and over again from 20 years ago. 
And yeah. who knows how many people were reading them then, but I'm sure a lot more people are reading them now. Same thing with Bill Gurley. So that's one of these things where I think you're right. If we view it through the specific lens of, you know, growing a podcast, you can have, you know, specific points on it. But if you, if you extend it out and just think about it from your own personal life and what each episode can represent, if you're not adding that much to your slate, I think it's a worthwhile activity and there's so many doors that it opens up. Yeah, it's it's so funny to me that like the people who see the value in developing digital assets naturally are the finance people because they understand how how, you know, financial assets work in a very deep way. And so when you you talk about building something that is proprietary and that cannot be depreciated in really any sense and instantly transportable, it's like it clicks with people in finance, you know, very quickly. Whereas with a lot of people who are just everyday people working, and maybe they're producing some sort of media media content that are on social media and stuff like that, unless they naturally stumble across a large audience base where they then realize how powerful the asset that they've stumbled upon is, they don't really see that, you know, in advance. And I think like even tracking people with like Joe Rogan or all these other people who are kind of surprised at like what they've stumbled upon to some extent, like I'm sure in some sense that they did have an idea of where they were going. Uh, But in terms of the massive exponential upside opportunity that exists, a lot of people I think are surprised. And even for myself, kind of knowing the finance background as well, starting my own website and starting my own podcast and all of these things, I'm seeing these things kind of overlap and impact each other in pretty surprising ways, which is really cool. Yeah. And I, I think you hit it dead on. And and something that I've thought about a little bit more recently is I went from being a research analyst at Goldman, where I was Matt Russell on UPS or on CSX Rail. And in that seat, I did get a lot of audience follow-up, but not nearly as much as I get today. And I think many people view that as I was the Goldman Sachs transportation analyst, not, you know, Matt Russell from Goldman Sachs. He just happens to work at Goldman Sachs. It was like, this is the Goldman Sachs research analyst. It just happens to be Matt Russell. Then I moved into the business breakdowns podcasting, which I do a lot of hosting for that. And I get a lot of feedback and follow up and interesting things that that come across my inbox from that. But it's different from making media where it's every week that I'm there. It's a little bit more personality. And and it's interesting to see kind of in three different categories where I get the most audience interaction, despite the size of those other two things being substantially bigger. Tough to know with the Goldman seat, but in theory, making media gets me easily the most amount of interesting inbound things. And not that, you know, uh, hierarchy matters or, you know, senior level executive stuff matters. But what I would say is it's also from a lot of people that are incredibly high up or you know, in very unique, powerful positions that are coming into me inbound. So I just think that's something interesting in terms of also, you know, who you're doing it for, the affiliation, individual versus brand, all that stuff. And I'm constantly surprised by those things. You know, been working here for over two years now, but it's it's like every few months I'm surprised by something that falls into the same theme. The other the other piece of the equation that is really intriguing to me is the the fact that digital communities can create communities that just otherwise wouldn't be sustainable without the reach that it has. Mm -hmm. And I'm seeing that on a daily basis as well. And 
it also has me thinking about the trade-off between quality of the audience and quantity of the audience. Because I think one of the things that, especially with Invest Like the Best or kind of the Colossus audience base in general, is you guys have some of the most sophisticated investors, finance minds following the work that you guys are putting out. And that's something really special. And even if you had 10x the audience base, but the quality was you know, incredibly diminished, you probably wouldn't see it as fruitful in terms of opportunities from those relationships. So that's that's something that is really intriguing to me as well. Yes, I think that's right. I think we make the content for a specific person in mind. And it's not to say that we don't think about someone who maybe has less experience. That's the beauty of podcasting and anything in this category is it democratizes some of this stuff where previously... If these were conversations you might only hear in a super private club or in a private dinner, and those people might be in the room anyway, well, now it's being broadcast out and anybody can listen to it. I think we lose some people because we won't necessarily talk down to the audience or overly explain some of the topics that we're talking about, but that's okay. And and we're okay with that. And I think it attracts the right type of people. So I'm always cautious to say like, oh, no, we only care about this specific audience. But I think your point is exactly right. And I think your point just in terms of smaller, tighter communities, that's what will happen in the future. Like, I don't think it's crazy to say monoculture is dead. You look at Hollywood, Tom Cruise is 61. He's basically the only actor out there that can attract everyone to the movies you just have much smaller, you know, thousand true fan economies that exist. And if you can build your ecosystem around the specific types of people that you're looking for, I actually think it's very interesting. You can create self-sustaining ecosystems where your audience can be your customers in terms of both sponsors and, you know, subscribing, paying customers. If you all have kind of the same interests in mind, you could build a a mini economy within an audience. In terms of with Colossus, the organization has grown in terms of the shows that it's running, the amount of guests that it has on. And you guys have a great website where you're kind of hosting a lot of content on there that leads to links and other resources. How do you kind of partition your time as like the CEO of the company? Is it kind of like take it week by week, depending on, you know, how many guests are queued up and like sponsorship discussions, or there's a lot that goes into the different pieces, right? With the editing and the operations, which I know Dom has a lot of involvement with, but from your perspective, in terms of how you want to think about Colossus and the growth, how do you tend to partition your time across the different responsibilities? Yeah, I I think you've hit on some of it, which is having Dom who's there to focus on a lot of the content and making sure that engine runs Joe on the engineering side, anything related to the website or anything digital he has. And Joanna now who stepped in and can really be hands-on with a lot of the things that will fall through the cracks or, you know, in terms of the social media, the outreach, a lot of those things. It's really helpful where my time can be a little bit more flexible now. But when I step back at the end of the day, we make podcasts about business and investing. And that means you have to get good guests. You have to find time to record with those guests. You have to edit and produce great episodes with them. And then you have to distribute it. And you have to find sponsors that will pay to be featured you know, on those episodes. So that's really, in the most simple terms, what it is. And that's really what my time you know, revolves around. Yeah. And when those things are all figured out for brief periods of time, that's when I start to look into 
some of the experimentational things and, you know, doing more with our website, partnerships, other mediums, just testing things out just to see if we can get a nibble and, and create some demand, which might suggest that there's a bigger opportunity beyond what we're doing with the core business. Yeah, 100%. And I think that probably for most of the audience base in terms of a lot of the flagship Colossus podcast, there is an appreciation for the quality of content, but there's also a lot of like logistical challenges in the background that probably don't get addressed. And I imagine that's even more so specifically in the finance realm, where it's like a lot of the, the guests who are like, you know, big shots, they're very particular about like how they get portrayed. And there may be overlap in terms of conflict of interest that where they need to take some edits out and all that stuff. So there's a lot that goes on behind the scenes that that I think people don't see. Whereas for me with this podcast, it's like we click record and there's, you know, there's bits here and there where it's like, maybe we'll take this out. But for the most part, it's just click record and upload. And it's a simple process. But when you're dealing with an operation that the scale that you guys are doing it is like a, a lot of contributions in place, right? Yes. There's a lot of cooks in the kitchen. I would say Patrick is an incredible at interviewing just right off the bat, but yep. also making guests feel like, wow, that was an awesome conversation. So it's rare that the guest will come back with strong edits, especially in a Patrick conversation. You might have compliance teams or if PR teams are involved, they might step in. But that has been a surprise to the upside where he typically does a very effective job of just getting an excellent conversation out of these guests. In business breakdowns, that's definitely the case. And these are all the things which we joke sometimes because a lot of podcasts start and we sometimes say, you know, should we make this seem harder? You know, we don't talk about a lot of that stuff. And maybe if we talk about it being harder and all the things that actually go into it, less people will do it. But, you know, it's it's great to have the chaos going on inside. We're chasing our tails most of the week. But what comes out in terms of the output rarely reflects that, at least in my opinion. So that makes me feel good. What, what do you think about the distribution mechanism for podcasts? Like it's hard to grow a podcast. And like you said earlier, a lot of it is a matter of time and probably relationship building, you know, one new listener at, at a time. Is there, do you think that there will be more disruptive aspects in terms of virality for podcasts to, to make it big? It seems like right now the method is you start a podcast and then you clip it up into shorts and you get, you know, visibility to that or Twitter and like between those two, you know, short videos and, and Twitter, you need some sort of virality me mechanism. But whether it's starting a newsletter or running a podcast, like those in terms of gaining new distribution is a very difficult medium. Do you think that there will ever be something that will allow podcasts to gain new, greater visibility? I do. I think it's tough to bet against technology, improving discoverability of podcasts. So even some of the evolution that you're now seeing in terms of auto transcription, where you think about what are the limitations in terms of discoverability, you don't have that much to search in terms of the terms that you might find. So all you can really control are your title, your show notes. But if somebody had a full transcription, you might that might allow for better discoverability. And I just think over time, it's going to benefit all of the platforms like a Spotify or an Apple podcast to improve discoverability and find different ways to enhance that. That said, I also think that it's such a different medium versus what you are doing when you chop things up. So 
yes, there's the movie trailer, which is three minutes long and is reflecting something that is, you know, an hour and 90 minutes. But a movie is very different than a conversation. So right. it's like the trailers and the clips and all that. I don't know how well those translate. I think right now, and this is something that we debate quite frequently, there's a difference between topic and subject. And if I think about the subject, it might be like the, the art of sales or, you know, conversations with junior level employees. Those are like subjects. Yeah. And I, I don't think those matter nearly as much as topics. If you can find a topic that you are focused on and that is your theme and you're going to specifically focus on that topic, that can be a way to grow fast. I think personalities, it takes time to develop chemistry with your audience, which sounds like a weird thing. You don't develop chemistry with your audience, but you do. There's yeah. this relationship that exists over time where little things, the laughing, the personality quirks, they come through and it takes time to build that up. And it's time that, you know, is, is there's a lot of competition over that time. Yeah. Well, I mean, on that point, the one thing that I'm very impressed by with making media is you guys are doing a duo host dynamic. And that's really tough to do. I mean, especially over Zoom, you, you guys have done a really good job. And it's very clear that both you and Dom have have a lot of chemistry. What was the initial impetus for starting making media? Because you had been, you know, basically managing Colossus for a period of time. And then you guys decided to start a, a podcast of your own. What was What was the catalyst for that? So... I think that if we spend all this time learning about businesses and in theory, studying great business leaders and history and all this, we're crazy for not documenting how we're trying to implement a lot of that ourselves. Yeah. And it's not a direct reflection of what we're doing as a business. A lot of it is our learning process and our learning journey. But I thought there needed to be something that at least looked inside the business. And here's the thing. You can't do this after the fact. Everybody's opinions change in terms of what was the case. Everybody has a different recollection of history. You see yep. this all the time in terms of oral histories. So the more that you can document, the better. And I think that was the number one thing. That was actually what the show was more focused on at first. It evolved. We did some test runs and we started to say, okay, let's tap more into the media space specifically. Kind of take this. We're outsiders. Let's learn from the insiders. And that's been excellent in terms of just opening doors. And I was just talking to Dom about this last week. If you think about who we now know very well in the media world in terms of founders, CEOs, high-level people at both public and private companies, we have built a Rolodex very, very quickly and built relationships with some of these people where it's not always obvious to see where the value is coming from. But mm -hmm. I think when I step back and look at that, I say, okay, it's, it's there without a doubt. It exists. So that was something to me that was pretty important. And it's been a lot of fun doing it from there. And what you mentioned just in terms of the, you know, even the things like the co-hosting, yep. I have always enjoyed, and you're starting to see a few more podcasts lean into this, the behind the scenes. People like to know what's actually going on, especially when you have highly polished stuff and you can't give away everything, but little things like, oh, you jumped me on all those questions in that interview. We could talk about that after the fact. Yeah. And we have a lot of people that really love that part of it. And you knowing like, oh, I was actually a little nervous for this one. Or like, oh, when he gave you that response and he just gave you that stare down. You know, those are things where I think some of the best moments come out of that. And that's where you build a relationship with the audience. I love all of our guests. A lot of our guests are there to stop by, say hello to everybody. And then they're on their way to the next show and do their next thing. The audience yeah. is going to remain. So 
you might as well have a conversation with your audience after the fact and not make it feel like, nope, the audience is separate. It's us and the guests. We're having this party. And then when it's over, we're all gone. It's like, no, stick around, hang out with your audience for a little bit. For sure. Yeah. The, the one thing that I have appreciated more over time is just the variability of injecting your personality into whatever work that you're doing. And when you and Dom, whether it's recording a brief intro before the actual recording or do a reflection at the end, that personality really comes through and the banter back and forth. So I've I've enjoyed following along with Making Media and I'm looking forward to a lot more episodes to come there too. In terms of the the audio dynamic as well. So even in the the reading space, like I, I had mentioned that one of my frustrations with reading was I, I love reading and I do think that it engages a different part of your brain. Like it hits you differently in some way, but you also have audiobooks now. And that's that's a pretty powerful tool as well. You've I, I saw that you have been uh, getting a little bit more into sci-fi as well. Is that primarily because of the audio format? I didn't get stuffed into lockers enough in college so uh, or in high school. So I was like, you know, what would have tapped into that energy? And, and sci-fi was definitely the category. I It's interesting that you mentioned all this. I had tried audiobooks previously, always struggled with it. I yeah. couldn't have, it, it's kind of funny to say if I'm so into podcasting and I can, you know, have some type of recall when it comes to the podcast material, why couldn't I do it with, with audiobooks? I think a lot of it was the narration and whatnot. But anyway, I found that with sci-fi and specifically Project Hail Mary by Andy Weir, read by Ray Porter, like there are three very important things in that it is the, you know, it's an awesome story. Andy Weir is incredible. And Ray Porter is an all-time narrator when it comes to audiobooks. There's a reason why, you, you know, he's done Tim Ferriss's book. He's done many very high profile books. It's a very interesting experience. And to me, it was like, okay, this is a way to tap into a genre, which is going to detach. I'm going to get a little bit of creative juice from sci-fi. It is insane. Like, you know, many of these things where you hear people say like, oh, you don't know about meditation until you meditate or like getting a workout in, there's nothing beating it. Sci-fi is a great way to explore, you know, curiosity and creativity. All yeah. these things are true once you experience them. So I've gotten that. And I, with kids now, it's tough to have time to get into books and just sit there for a while. So I've done it mostly in that category. But when I find books with great narrators, and sometimes it's memoirs like Matthew McConaughey, Greenlight, you will never have to ask yourself why that guy had a successful career. Like it, it, his name needs to be next to charisma in the dictionary because it just oozes off of the pages. And you're almost just purely jealous about his ability to tell stories. And I thought I had zero interest in hearing him. Same mm -hmm. thing with Anthony Bourdain with his book. So I don't know if I answered your actual question, but I think it's very interesting. And it's actually opened my eyes up in terms of audio. There's things beyond just like the flexibility of the medium and whatnot. It's the voice, like uh, how they actually carry out the conversation, how that hits differently. So when we go back to interviews now, it's going to be different than people love, you know, the Playboy interviews from the 70s and the 80s. Text on a page, it's awesome. It yep. does not have the same emotion that you get from an interview. And I think that's that's something that's very interesting. And when you can tap into that, I don't know, there's something more there that I think will, will bleed into podcasting as well over time. I, I think it gets to a lot of part of why I wanted to start my own podcast was when I was over and involved with the Colossus side project that was Frontier and having the opportunity to interview folks, 
doing that on a regular basis, you become much more dialed into how you're speaking and the intonation that you're using and all the filler words. And especially when you have to listen back to the audio and you know, you know, I don't know anybody who doesn't have a sense of like disgust for hearing their own voice. Right. But you realize just like how incapable you are of communicating an idea in your head. And I mean, I knew this early on because when I was at Stanford, it was very clear to me that there were professors who were very accomplished professors, but for the life of them, they could not make their ideas digestible to smart undergraduates. And there were others who they probably didn't have the same insights or depth of knowledge as those professors, but they could make, they could deliver it in a way where those things were comprehensible. And that's like an incredible superpower. And one of the things that I do think of why somebody like Joe Rogan is has been so successful is he has these very intelligent people on his podcast that alone could not make their ideas as comprehensible to the wider public. And he's sort of become like a megaphone translator for getting other people excited about these things that are happening in the world. And that's, I think, a lot of what podcasting is. And I realized that that skill set is like very difficult to hone. And so I'm trying to use my own podcast as a way for me to, you know, continue to work and work at that. I think that is 100% right. And I think conversations are the best way to learn, in my opinion. You read something, go have a conversation about it. You'll realize how quickly you did or did not learn about whatever you're doing. And it's like, if you want to learn, teach. Well, if you want to learn, just read about something and talk to an expert about it, and you'll see how much you know or don't know. And you're going to bring an outsider's perspective to it. So an audience is going to benefit from all everything you just mentioned is spot on. Something you were saying there in terms of you realize your filler words as a side note, it absolutely kills me. When I listen to business breakdowns, the amount of times that I say, you mentioned this, I'm curious about, I'm so fucking curious, according to business breakdowns, about everything. Yeah, I need to stop using that. And it's a different <laughs> filler word than uh or um, It's but it drives me absolutely nuts. I'm like, how many times am I going to say I'm curious in, in a recording? So yes, that it still happens all the time. And it's tough to listen to yourself. It just evolves in stages. But something you mentioned there in terms of compressing ideas down, it's funny you mentioned all that because what it's made me appreciate and even doing things like this, this podcast, I'll listen back to it and I'll say, oh, I can really tighten up that explanation or and and I get to hear from the people who do that really well. There are guests on all of our shows. I think there's power in writing. Writing allows you to compress your ideas and it's compressed to impress as Liberty, one of the guests on our podcast would say. But that is so powerful. You can you know, shorten your ideas and deliver them with maxims that are strong. And I think the way that you do that best is by writing it out, sketching it out. And that's something that I, I should spend some time doing over the next year as I listen to myself back sometimes. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I, I am obsessed with this idea of like instituting as many reality forms of a reality check into your world as possible. And to me, like writing is a very real one where you think you have an idea down, you go to mm-hmm. write and just nothing comes out. Like maybe you'll get the first couple of sentences and then you're just stuck for a very long period of time. And I feel like trying to explain an idea to somebody who doesn't understand it is another way of doing that of, of a form of reality check. And I do feel like, and maybe this is a broader like cultural take is that it seems like in society, we have a lot fewer of those types of reality checks in terms of like just everyday society. And, and I, I'm always looking for like ways where I can tighten the feedback loop so that like I can take corrective action, you know, and if you go long enough where you don't have those, those things, those reality checks, then 
ideas can fester that just like don't make sense. And you can, your, your, your thinking is just less sharp. And so that's something that, you know, I'm super excited about with podcasting too. Yeah. My, my notes app and my Evernote package would, would both agree with your, (laughs) you can let things just sit there and you think that there's something there, but they just sit there and they don't evolve. I like the reality check framework. That's, that's really good. Yeah. Well, I'm, I, it's funny because we have talked about this a couple of times before, which is just the idea of having mentors and like, even my own, like, I guess some sense of like a contempt, natural contempt for authority of like not being told what to do necessarily, but in terms of like being at Colossus for a period of time and working with you and you also having followed somewhat of a a similar career trajectory in terms of interests and then being at Goldman and then shifting away into something new. Uh, It's been a joy for me to get to know you over the years and also like pulling advice and learning from your own career path. So I've, I've really appreciated that. And going back to what we had said earlier when we first started, there aren't that many people in my prior professional career that I still interact with on a regular basis, but you are, you and Dom are both like one of the few. And I think a lot of that is because we all have a passion for podcasting and that's, that's like very contagious and energizing. So I'm a super big fan of what you guys are doing with making media and appreciate you coming on to, to be an early guest of the pod. Absolutely. I like you for way more than just podcasting. It's okay if you just like me for that. I like you for your writing, your ideas, your essays. I think you have a lot of great thoughts. And one thing I would say is what has amazed me is I think we're similar in the way that sometimes we feel like we didn't take advantage of networking opportunities to the extent that we should have. But just being 10 years older, that's not ahead older, What I have found is even those relationships where you didn't force networking on them, they just existed. You had good experiences. You worked well together. Even though nothing came of it, you didn't stay personally close. Those will come back over the next 10 years. And I have been very surprised for the amount of stress that I had over the networking that I wasn't doing. The network that I now feel like I have from people that were just organic, good working relationships that is really interesting to me. And what happens is some people go on a path that ends up following yours. It's just you take different routes to get there. So not that you were asking, but I would say, you know, obviously keep us close to you, me and Dom, but just know that that there's there's probably a much bigger network that would consider you to be a great colleague from your past that will probably pop up in the future too. hundred percent, hundred percent. No, I'm so bullish on just investing on relation in relationships that will last. And yeah. I have high conviction that between you, myself and, and Dom, a lot of these relationships, even if they don't translate into business overlap or whatever, I'll find them incredibly fruitful and rewarding. So I'm very excited to follow along with the development of making media and all that Colossus is, is up to. So thanks again. Amen. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Idea Exchange Podcast. For more information on the podcast and more information about myself, you can visit tylercho.com. I also send out a monthly newsletter to friends, family, and colleagues where I essentially share the best ideas that I came across from that month, whether it was books that I've been reading, podcasts that I've been listening to, or just conversations that I've been having. So feel free to subscribe on the homepage of my personal website. Until next time.